0: In January 2015, Yahoo News political reporter John Ward flew down to Atlanta to interview former President Jimmy Carter about one of the most painful moments in his political career. It had taken place on an evening that should have been one of Carter's greatest triumphs, the night he formally accepted the Democratic Party's nomination to run for a second term as president. But on the stage at Madison Square Garden, Ted Kennedy, who had challenged Carter in a grueling primary battle, humiliated him. Kennedy was drinking that night, Carter told Ward. Everybody knew it. On the stage, when we were looking for harmony, I reached out to shake his hand. He refused to shake hands with me. In fact, Carter was misremembering events slightly. Kennedy had shaken his hand that night a couple of times, but over the course of a few awkward minutes, Kennedy did refuse to clasp hands with Carter and raise their arms together. The traditional show of unity that the delegates in the garden, as well as the national TV audience was looking for. It was an enduring symbol of the rift within the Democratic Party between its progressive and centrist wings that had played out and hardened during the epic clash between Carter and Kennedy. It is a story brilliantly documented in Ward's new book, Camelot's End, Kennedy versus Carter and the fight that broke the Democratic Party. And it is a story more relevant than ever as Democrats vying for the presidency in 2020 are already facing off, taking swipes at each other over some of the same issues that divided the party nearly 40 years ago. We'll talk about Ward's book and its message for today with the author himself on this episode of Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Izakov, chief investigative correspondent for Yahoo News, and I'm Dan Clydeman, editor in chief of Yahoo News. John Ward, welcome to Buried Treasure.
1: Hey guys, it's uh, pretty cool that I'm not just on School Duckery, but on Buried Treasure. <laughs> uh, I don't have my eye patch. I don't. I don't know if yeah. I have well, that on you're- right now.
0: Your book is made to order for buried treasure. We look for stories from the past relevant to today, and it seems that the uh, Kennedy versus Carter battle meets that test to the T.
1: Yeah, it does. I mean, it's, as you mentioned, it's relevant because this fight among Democrats has kind of, you know, not ever died down. It's kept going, it's been revived to different degrees and in different ways over the years, but we're definitely going to get a battle royale this coming year. And it's been interesting to watch Sherrod Brown kind of step out over the the last few days. He talked to our own Andrew Romano about sort of pushing back some of the more pie-in-the-sky promises that uh, folks on the left side of the party are making.
2: Yeah, that was a really interesting interview, and we can get to that and some of the relevance to uh, today's politics in a little bit. But just tell us to start what drew you to this story? Why do this book?
1: Well, the scene that Mike read at the beginning was what drew me to the story, because I, I ran into some folks who were there that night and who were talking about it. And uh, one of them you know, had worked on Obama's campaign and was his delegate hunter, Jeff, a guy named Jeff Berman. He ended up being a big supporter of the book early on, and you know as both of you have written books, you know you need those people you know early on when it's just a small idea, a little seedling. You need those people who are believers in the book and who help you make those first few contacts, at least I did, but they were telling me this story about Carter chasing Kennedy around the stage and Kennedy being drunk. And I just didn't know a lot about the story, honestly. And that's what intrigued me. And then I ran into Anita Dunn a couple minutes later. She was at this DNC meeting as well. And she told me about the way that the party had been divided by this, not just over sort of ideology or policy, but really in personal, deeply personal ways. Like there were camps that came out of this year that were hating each other for years and years on end afterwards during a time when the party couldn't win the presidency for another 12 years. So that kind of cinematic drama combined with the historical scope looked to me like a good candidate for a book. And then as I got into it, the backgrounds of the two guys and the contrast between them and the ways that they were on parallel tracks got into politics around the yeah, same time I mean, so they were kind of circling each other it was just very interesting yeah. so the
2: ideological differences were pretty clear but what was really compelling were the personality and and the human differences which you captured beautifully
0: so john was kennedy drunk that night
1: well i mean i think the odds are probably greater than 50% that he was bob shrum was his longtime speechwriter and advisor and he was with kennedy at the waldorf astoria before they headed to the convention hall and Shrum swears that Kennedy wasn't drinking. But given everything we know about Kennedy's personal life at that time, you know, it's a pretty good likelihood that he was definitely had a few drinks. Maybe Shrum is kind of splitting hairs, you know, said, so, well, he had three rum and Cokes, but it wasn't five. Yeah. Uh, it might be that kind of thing. You know,
0: the thing about this is from today's perspective, Kennedy was the heir to the Kennedy tradition. Uh, There was still this great reverence for his two older brothers, both of whom had been assassinated. He was the progressive champion. But he had so much personal baggage that in today's journalistic climate would have gotten so much more scrutiny than it did back then. I mean, obviously, Chappaquiddick, you know, loomed large. But, you know, His personal behavior, even during that period, years after Chappaquiddick, was still problematic. But there weren't that many stories in the mainstream press about that, were there?
1: You know what's interesting? Chappaquiddick really opened the floodgates on some of this because he was drinking a lot, running around on his wife for much of the 60s. He entered the Senate in 62. But it wasn't until 69 when Chappaquiddick happened, when uh, Mary Jo Kopechny ended up dead on Martha's Vineyard in Kennedy's car after he had been driving it. It wasn't until then that the press really kind of started to write about his personal life in any way. So that was really interesting to see. He also lost a lot of prominence in the Senate after that. He was angling for leadership up until that point and then was sort of embarrassed and lost his leadership post. This amazing scene where you know he's having to walk around the floor of the Senate talking to other lawmakers. His staff is telling him to go up and talk to other lawmakers and just make small talk just so that the reporters in the gallery think that he's doing something so that he looks like he has some influence in the Senate because he was really an outcast after that. But yeah, before before Chappaquiddick, there was a a lot of misbehavior that went unremarked upon. That was just the way it was. And, you know, our other colleague, Matt Bai has written about how some of that started to change in um, the 80s with Gary Hart. But as I I looked at Kennedy, there was certainly plenty of writing about Chappaquiddick, about his personal behavior in the run-up to 1980. And that was something that I don't think they had necessarily counted on. I think they expected it to get some mention, but I think they also assumed that it had been a decade and that people would sort of say, well, that's in the past. Well, of course, John,
2: you know, he didn't run in 72 or 76. Too soon. A lot of people would have expected that he would have, but it was too soon after Chappaquiddick. He couldn't. And, you know, I think your book also shows that even in 80, Chappaquiddick was kind of loomed large and he spent a lot of time and his advisors spent a lot of time kind of thinking about that and whether that would be a problem.
1: You know, they, they spent time thinking about it to some degree, but only in the sense that they were trying to figure out, are people going to care about this anymore? They didn't really have a plan for what happened if it became a huge issue. And I, I really do get the sense from everything I did research on that they just thought it was going to be a cakewalk because Carter's poll numbers were so bad the fall of 79. There was one like – They were in the 20s, weren't they, at some point? There was one New York Times-ABC poll that had him at 19% in September. You know, that
2: that is – it's fascinating because we're at a moment when Donald Trump's poll numbers are – In the 30s. In in, in the 30s, which, you know, people think, can they drop any lower than that? That is really almost like the basement these days. And I guess it says something about how polarized we are now because we're so divided and tribal in our politics that – You probably can't drop down to the 20s anymore.
1: No, I mean, that's a big part of it. The other side of that coin, I looked at this yesterday. I looked at the Gallup tracking poll for every president going back to Eisenhower. And of all those presidents, from Eisenhower to Trump, Carter had by far the lowest average approval rating in his own party of any president. It was like 57. And so, you know, Trump's is now... Has been in the high 80s. It's now like around 80. It's dropped some. I was just talking though to a guy who who is fairly close to the White House, who was saying that he doesn't think that the shutdown was that big of a deal for Trump's base. Ann Coulter got a lot of attention for criticizing Trump. I guess Steve King did as well. But, you know, this guy's point was Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, they're the ones who have more influence with the base. And they're kind of telling people, look, he tried and, you know, give him a pass. And so This person thinks he's stabilized. It's not going to be that big of a deal. I don't know. I mean, I think that the shutdown has sort of softened him up a little bit. But, yeah, the point is there needs to be a whole hell of a lot damaging stuff that happens to Trump for him to have any – Real vulnerability to a primary, although you know there's a, there's a little more now than there was two months ago.
0: So you know there's so many memorable moments from that uh, primary battle between Carter and Kennedy, which you capture in the book. You know, one that always stood out for me, and and even more so after to reading your book, was that first 60 Minutes interview that Kennedy does with Roger Mudd, in which he's asked why <laughs> why do you want to be president, and he just fumbles around. He can't come up with an articulate response to the question.
1: The thing I love to point out about that episode is that that question and answer came around minute 35 or 40 in a 60 minute hour long special on uh, CBS. And I couldn't find the full footage of the interview anywhere. So I ended up having to go to Nashville to an archive of network footage to watch the whole thing, which seems a little bit much, but that's what you have to do sometimes. And when I watched that, the first 30 minutes were an interview on Cape Cod, and it's all about Chappaquiddick, and Kennedy is just getting bludgeoned by Roger Mudd with question after question about what happened that night. Mudd actually puts a camera on the front of a car and drives the same route down to Dyke Bridge that Kennedy claimed to have driven he does it at night and it shows how the road is so rutted that if you were going fast enough to go off the bridge like you would have realized oh i'm not on the main road anymore and so mud just really indicts kennedy in the eyes of the public even before you get to the question of why do you want to be president and i think the reason that question and kennedy's sort of meandering answer became such a big deal is because it stood for something much bigger, which is this question of did he actually want to be president or did he just feel like he had to run for president because both of his brothers – one had been president and assassinated. Another had tried to resurrect Camelot and then also been assassinated. And so there was this sense of obligation, duty, and even a haunting by his brother's ghost that was driving him towards this enterprise. The whole Democratic Party wanted him to resurrect Camelot to resurrect something that had been their former days of glory. And that's a lot for one person to kind of stand up under, especially when since he was basically an adult, his whole life had been dictated to him by other people. He had never been able to call his own shots. He wanted to move out West after law school. His dad said, go to Massachusetts and take your brother's Senate seat. And so that answer was symbolic of so much more, which is why it's remembered the way it is now.
2: John, this uh, sense of wanting to bring Camelot back implies that uh, there was a feeling in the country at the time that things really weren't going well. And I want you to talk a little bit about the cultural backdrop. What was going on in the country, this you know, sense of people being dispirited? We can talk about the malaise speech, where, of course, you didn't use the word malaise, as we <laughs> uh, people sometimes forget. But you kind of capture the mood of the country and some of the crazy stuff that was going on at the time, which I think is part of the reason, probably, that the Kennedy people did think that it would be a cakewalk.
1: Yeah, there was two things going on. The, the country was in a bit of a tailspin, and the Democratic Party was losing its grip on power. And those two things are really both important to understand. And the whole decade of the 70s had been – not great for the country. You had the Vietnam War heading into that decade and I think the, the most casualties were in sixty nine, if I'm correct about that. Watergate happens and so you've got these twin blows to the the public's faith in institutions and in the government. And then you have energy crises in seventy three and then again in seventy nine, which, you know, the year of seventy nine, it's interesting, you look at Carter as he enters where we are now in our election cycle, a year out from the first primaries. Carter's poll numbers were around 50%. He was in good shape. But 79 was a brutal, brutal year because inflation goes from 9 to 12%. Interest rates to buy a house, to buy a car are much higher. I think my dad the other day was saying it was like 18% interest rates to, to make a big purchase, which puts it out of reach for a lot of people. And then you have gas lines starting in May or June of 79 and it's panicked behavior. People are literally fearful that they will not be able to get gas. They won't be able to, get to go to the store to get food. They won't be able to get to the hospital if their kid gets sick. And so they sit in line at these gas stations for hours, sometimes overnight, and violence starts to break out. And so the country, there's a riot in Levittown, Pennsylvania, where people are burning tires in the middle of a huge intersection, and there's uh, 200 arrests. So there's a sense of the country spiraling out of control. Our place on the world stage was in doubt. Carter was really not the kind of leader who could – project a sense of strength and being in command that just wasn't who he was. And Kennedy, I think more than anything, saw that as the biggest problem. But what was um, the,
0: John, what was the policy clashes between them, though? I mean, when one thinks of Kennedy, you know, certainly, you know, the great champion of uh, of universal health care. Right. But as you recount the malaise of the country uh, at the time, It doesn't sound like that's what people were necessarily looking for or wanting to talk about, given all the other problems the country was facing. So what was Kennedy campaigning on? Where was he saying Carter was falling short?
1: Well, there's two different parts of that question. The first part is, what were the ideological differences? And they were about health care, and they were also about responding to inflation. But as you point out, this was not a big part of Kennedy's campaign. And the answer to your second part of your question, which is what did he campaign on, was just leadership. He wasn't really going out there and saying we need universal health care. And he wasn't at the beginning of his candidacy saying we need price controls and we need more government spending to help people who are being hurt by inflation. He didn't talk about that stuff. He did later in the primary. But when he first got in, it was basically – If you look at his speech where he announces his candidacy, it's all about the country being in crisis and Carter not being able to lead the country during that time and having weak leadership and Kennedy saying that I will bring stronger leadership to help us through this period. Once he loses the Iowa caucus and he gives the speech at Georgetown where he kind of decides, okay, I'm going to run as a liberal now, that's when he starts to talk about price controls and government spending to help people being hurt by inflation but he doesn't start out that way and you know people like shram feel like that was a huge mistake they were kind of suckered into running as an all things to all people candidate which sapped kennedy of a lot of his energy
0: now from carter's perspective it's almost like uh... i mean there was a deep antipathy towards kennedy himself the sort of personal <laughs> grievances that the two of them had talk about that a little
1: bit if you get the book I was very deliberate about putting these, the photos together in a way that conveyed the contrast between them. The first two photos are a photo of Jimmy Carter at about age nine on his family farm in southwest Georgia. They did not have running water. They did not have electricity until he was 12, or 9 or 10 or 11, 12 years old. And so the picture shows Carter with no shirt and no shoes with his mom. I mean, it looks like one of those pictures from the Depression. Which, in fact, it was. I mean, that was the start of the Depression when he was about that age. And then the other pictures of Kennedy, he was the youngest of nine. His and It's a picture of him and his siblings and his father in London. His father, Joe Sr., was the ambassador to the UK. So he had everything, uh, wealth and privilege and power. And I think Carter felt like he had just had everything handed to him. He was a spoiled playboy and didn't know what it meant to work hard. And uh, Carter certainly did. I mean, he had to will his way into everything that he ever got, whether it was the Naval Academy or even the state Senate in Georgia and certainly the presidency. I mean, they were just alien creatures to each other. Uh, uh, John, I mean – And Carter's willpower was incredible. And it – Seems to me
2: that that image that you just talked about of Kennedy as this wealthy, privileged, kind of entitled Kennedy with these kind of aristocratic airs actually was damaging to him politically. His brothers—it was a different time in our politics. His brothers were able to get away with that, but by the time Kennedy, Teddy was uh, was running, you know, you had the sort of almost the beginning of the Reagan Democrats, the sort of Archie Bunker Democrats, and the antipathy toward Ted Kennedy from the American working class was pretty strong, uh, as I recall it.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, we talked about the way that Watergate and Vietnam really produced the first real wave of strong anti-establishment and anti-institutionalism in our culture and in our politics. And I don't have the same memories of that period that you do, uh, but I do remember the story of him walking down uh, the St. Patrick's Day Parade in Chicago before the primary there. And that's, you know, a a white ethnic working class town. And he was getting booed and catcalled and tomatoes thrown at him. Uh, At one point, there were firecrackers that went off and he kind of his knees kind of buckle because it's always in the back of his mind that he could be the next Kennedy to be assassinated. And I think it you know, in all the talking I've done about this book, there I haven't actually talked about this. The fact that for all the abuse that people throw at Ted Kennedy, much of it deserved for his personal behavior, I think it's still worthwhile to consider the the toll that it takes on somebody to be in public life and to constantly be thinking about how they could be shot at any moment. That takes a real psychic toll and I think things like that play a role, not to excuse his personal behavior, but play a role in some of his misbehavior, his drinking and other things. And so, yeah, I just think that's part of the book's appeal to me is that it tries to be clear eyed about the shortcomings of these men, but also empathetic to their humanity.
0: Have you gotten any feedback from Carter about the book?
1: No, and I might actually see him in a few weeks. Uh, our kids are off school, and we might take them down to Plains to uh, to watch him teach Sunday school, which he is still doing incredibly.
0: Well, we will be fascinated to hear yeah. what he thinks I, of this.
2: Uh, just as a kind of a coda to this conversation, you know, this is not something that's part of the story that you tell. But one of the ironies is that in their own ways— Carter, who's not remembered as having, you know, one-term president, not the most successful presidency. Kennedy, who loses this battle. But they both go on to post-presidential or presidential campaign careers that really cement their legacies um, in uh, pretty interesting ways.
1: Just talk about that a little bit. This story is not something that either side wants to focus on, but it's like many things in life it's something that is really crucial in some interesting ways to their future success for kennedy it was getting past this obligation and this duty of having to run for president at some point once he was past that once he had kind of exercised these ghosts from his life he was able to focus more fully on being a senator and to be taken more seriously as a senator. by the press, but also by Republicans. When he was no longer a potential presidential candidate, Republicans were much less skeptical of his motives for wanting to work with them on legislation, and he was able to get a lot done because of that. And for Carter, uh, you know, I think... I think there's less of a sense of oh, you know he had to lose to get to the post presidency. I mean I think he would much rather won, and it's interesting to think about what would have happened to the Democratic Party if he had won, because then maybe they don't go through 12 years of trying to run left and losing until they get to Clinton. But nonetheless, after he loses, he goes through a period of uh, depression. But then because you – know, out of that depression, he's motivated to start the Carter Center. And what the Carter Center has done has not only redefined the post-presidency for uh, presidents to play a role in public life and in philanthropy, and the, you know, Carter has mediated hotspot conflicts. He has overseen elections in some places that are troubled democracies, and he's eradicated disease. I mean, he has almost single-handedly eradicated the guinea worm disease in Africa. They were very close to completely eradicating it a couple years ago and then had a little bit of a setback. But the fact that he's almost been able to get entirely rid of a disease that is very painful for people um, is incredible.
0: And I should point out, it's a post-presidency that really has been focused on improving the world and not enriching oneself in the
1: way that yes. uh,
0: other uh, presidents have done in their uh, in their post-presidential
1: careers. Mike, that's a great point. I mean, that, that is a big contrast between Carter. He gets a lot of criticism, including from other ex-presidents, for sort of his self-righteous, like less-than-warm, you know, mm-hmm. personal style. But that's a great example of how his integrity is uh, is pretty much above reproach.
0: Just in terms of the relevance for today, one can already see in the Democratic Party primary battle shaping up. You have centrists like Joe Biden, to some extent Sherrod Brown, Michael Bloomberg on the one hand, and you have this really fired up progressive wing with a, a a whole series of candidates from Elizabeth Warren to uh, now uh, Kamala Harris how do you see the parallels between what we're about to s- see unfold in in the Democratic Party now with what you were writing about back then
1: it's interesting as you kind of list out those names because what i was thinking at first was that there's no women in that moderate to centrist wing, which then made me realize, well, maybe that opens the door. Maybe that's the lane for Amy Klobuchar, the senator from Minnesota. You know, she's a woman, but she's the only woman that I can think of that would be in that more moderate uh, lane of the party. And
0: a guest is, on Skullduggery just a week or so ago.
1: I should yeah, that's out. an intriguing <laughs> sort of uh, argument for her. But when you kind of compare 80 to, t- to 2020, um, Kennedy was trying to take the party left. Carter was trying to keep it in a more moderate centrist place. A lot of this was on fiscal stuff and the role of government. The country at that time was not in a real mood to receive where Kennedy wanted to go. And even the New York Times editorial page said that quite clearly, which, you know, it's a pretty, the Times editorial page is pretty left. And um, as far as I know, has always been that way. And so for them to say that I think was, was noteworthy. And, and I think now – well, I think now it seems like the country is is in a much more receptive mood to the kind of liberalism, full-throated liberalism um, that Elizabeth Warren and, and Kamala Harris want to take it in. But I think the electoral college is, is more tricky. That's the real debate that Democrats are going to have. Sure, like there's a, there's a lot of people in the country that, that want – more economic justice, more racial justice. But can you get to 270 with that kind of a platform? That's the real complicated question. So,
2: John, we just talked about what lessons uh, Democrats can draw from this story. But let me just ask you quickly what lessons Republicans can learn from this story and specifically the idea of a primary challenge, because at this moment, you've got some Republicans who are actively considering it, notably John Kasich, if you were John Kasich, uh, what specifically would you take from this story as uh, as he considers whether to primary Donald
1: Trump? Well, I think as much as we talk about tribalism and the way that Trump has a hold on his base, I think the big lesson here is that things can change on a dime. And uh, as I mentioned, Carter was heading into this time of the year 40 years ago in pretty good shape. You know, he had just wrapped up the, the Middle East peace deal the previous fall. And in fact, his numbers bumped back up in the spring of 79 because he finalized that deal. It was not actually finalized until about March. But then things unraveled. And as even though Trump looks like there's no way you can separate it from his base, you just never know. And events always surprise us. And I think somebody like Kasich or Larry Hogan or Mitt Romney, maybe, you know, they're not gonna jump in probably right now, but they're positioning themselves to be in the right position if things go south for Trump. I, I think there's still a demand though among some segment of Republicans for some option. And I think the big question here is, do you just wait until circumstances look inviting like Kennedy did, or do you actually say I'm gonna give my party an alternative because I think, if I'm speaking in the in the voice of a Mitt Romney or a John Kasich, I think the party is already lost, and so I'm gonna. I know people will accuse me of splitting the party, dividing the party, and hurting the party, but it's already lost its soul, in my opinion, and so I'm going to do this to try to present an alternative, to try to present a way for the party to find its way back.
2: Well, we uh, we will look forward to you uh, drawing on all of the thinking and historical research and reporting you've done for this book to cover that narrative um, as we go forward um, in Yahoo News, um, and it'll give us, I think, more opportunities to have you on uh, Skullduggery, and we look forward to it, and this truly is, as Isakoff said at the start, an extraordinary book. Incredibly well told, well researched, um, and I would encourage uh, all of our listeners to go
1: out and buy it. Thank you, guys. You're good friends and, uh, and great colleagues. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, John. Thank
0: you, John.
2: Thanks to John Ward for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts and tell us what you think. Leave a review. Be sure to follow us on social media at Skullduggery Pod. We'll talk to you on Friday.